actually woke up with that song on my heart this morning. For some reason, didn't even know you were singing that. But praise the Lord, he did. I brought my paper notes with me today. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a little problem. Uh, by the way, you know, a couple of weeks, was it last Sunday? Brian started preaching. Y'all, were y'all, was that last Sunday? Yeah, I heard Brian, he started preaching. I thought I was fixing to have to turn and let him go. I'm going to one Sunday. He got tuned up last week. Y'all pray with me. Father, thank you for Jesus being exalted during our worship service. That beautiful, powerful name of Jesus, the precious shed blood of Jesus, that Jesus saves. Lord Jesus, we've exalted you, and you said when you're lifted up, you'll draw all men and women, boys and girls, to yourself. That's what we ask you to do. Use this message, Lord, by your Spirit, speak to every heart here, as you know each heart, each need, in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis chapter 28, that's where we're going to be, and uh, I want to remind you as we uh, continue in this series entitled Great Cloud of Witnesses, you're composing your testimony every day by the words you say, by the way you act, and behave, by the things that you do, by the places you go, and your, your attitude how you handle difficulties, how you respond to criticism, all of that, you're building your testimony. Your testimony is more than telling what you know about something. It's more than even telling how you were saved. It's really your whole life story. Hebrews 11 gives us a synopsis of the lives of several men and women whose testimonies live on as examples and encouragement, as challenge and inspiration for the followers of Christ. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And verse 5 talks about Enoch. It says that he had, a, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And verse 39 says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. What I want you to understand in this series is that, yes, these men and women had a great testimony. They're part of God's story, but so are you. You're a part of God's story. Last month we studied the life of Abraham, and today and for the next several weeks we're going to trace the testimony of Jacob. And Genesis gives us the privilege of seeing Jacob's testimony at every stage of his spiritual development. Psalm 78 says, God established a testimony in Jacob. That is, God was at work in Jacob's life to bring Jacob to himself. Do you understand that that's what God's up to in your life? Your story is his story at work in you. That he's at work in you to bring you to himself and to bring those around you to himself. That's your testimony. See, you're a part of this great cloud of witnesses because they were not made perfect without us, verse 40 says in Hebrews 11. But where did, Jacob where did Jacob's testimony begin? Where does all of our testimony begin? Well, we saw last week that Jacob was born grasping the heel of his brother as he was on the way out of the womb, Jacob's hand reached out and grabbed, grasped his brother's heel. So thus they named him Jacob, the grasper. 
What does that tell you about you and me and everybody born since the time of Adam is that we're all born sinful, selfish, grasping. We're all born for, with a sinful nature that it's all about us. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None good, no, not one. He, uh, Romans 5.12 tells us that because, as sin entered the world through one man, that was Adam, and then death entered through sin. So we were all born with this sinful, grasping nature. But there came a point in Jacob's life when he encountered the Lord. And Jacob's decision at that moment changed the course of his life and changed his eternity. Jacob moved from being a grasper to being a vower, V-O-W-E-R. Genesis 28, 20 says, Jacob vowed a vow. Now what is a vow? You are familiar with vows. If you're married, you took a vow, wedding vows. If you have ever borrowed money, you have taken a vow. You have pledged to commit to something. A vow is more than a mere statement of intent. When you make a vow, you're not saying, I plan on doing something. You're committing your life to doing something or living a certain way. Another example of this in the Bible is the Nazarite vow. One who took this vow could not drink wine, could not have, in fact, anything made from grapes, could not cut the hair of his head, could not touch the dead, even that of his mother and father. The Nazarite vow was to separate that man as holy unto the Lord. And God took it very seriously. A vow is very serious. It requires a commitment of one's life to a cause, to a way of life, to a belief. And the Bible warns us, better not to vow than to vow and what? Break it. Better not to have vowed than to vow and break it. Jacob made a vow, and we're going to examine that vow this morning in order for us to examine our own lives to see if we've made that kind of commitment to the Lord, to check out the genuineness of our testimony, to see if we have a real relationship with the Lord. So I want you to notice in Genesis 28, 13, Let's pick up with verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you gave me, I will surely give a tenth to you. I want you to notice, first of all, as Jacob begins this journey with the Lord, that God initiates this relationship. God revealed to Jacob who he was. He said, I am the L-O-R-D, all caps. Every time you see that in the, New, in the Old Testament, you're seeing the word interpreted, or you're seeing the name of God, Yahweh, or some say Jehovah. It means the self-existent one, or the eternal one. It comes from a root word that means to exist, or to be. In other words, God did not have to be created. He always was. He's saying to Jacob, as he reveals himself to each of us, I am the self-existent, one and only God. He says, I am the Lord God of your fathers. In other words, I'm not some new and different God. You see, God makes himself known here to Jacob as the one and only God. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He affirms that in Isaiah 45. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Listen, when you commit your life to Jesus Christ, who has been revealed from heaven by God the Father, then you are denying all other gods. There are no other gods. You're not saying, I'm going to add this new God to my pantheon of other gods. This is the one true God. God wanted Jacob to know that. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, Paul reiterated this. He says, there's one Lord, there's one God, there's one faith, one Father and God of all. And here, even Jacob, to Jacob, he reveals, God reveals the gospel. You remember, the Bible says in Galatians 3, 8, we looked at this last week. Well, actually, a couple of weeks ago. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, quote, In you all the nations shall be blessed. He says the same thing to Jacob here in verse 14. In your seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. He is pointing Jacob the same way he pointed Abraham to the coming Messiah. You see, the only difference between our faith and Abraham and Jacob's faith was a matter of direction and perspective. Their faith looked forward to Christ coming. Our faith looks back that Christ has already come and completed his work. It's the only difference. They're all saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. It was Abraham's faith that got Abraham righteous and made right with God. And that's how we're all saved. Now listen this passage here, God says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not misunderstood this, understand this passage. Do not misunderstand it. Jacob did not inherit his father's faith. 
Jacob did not inherit eternal life from Abraham. Yes, he did inherit the promises that God gave Abraham, but God revealed himself to Jacob individually, calling Jacob to make his personal commitment on his own accord. You do not inherit your parents' faith. God has no grandchildren. You're not a Christian because you were born into a Christian home or a Christian family or to Christian parents or in a quote-unquote Christian nation. You're not saved because you were born into a Christian church or because you got baptized or christened in a Christian church. You see, God may have used your parents' faith to reveal himself to you, but you must make your own personal commitment to Jesus Christ. You cannot borrow your parents' faith. So God initiated this relationship by revealing himself personally to Jacob. Have you had that personal encounter with God? Or have you borrowed it from somebody? You see, it can't be borrowed. It's got to be your own. Second thing I want you to see in this passage is that salvation, being saved, is not just some religious spiritual experience. Verse 12 and 13 describes a very interesting experience Jacob had. He had a dream of a ladder that reached to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. I want, you, I want to notice three things about this experience that could be misinterpreted. And I want you to think about all your spiritual experiences and how sometimes we can misinterpret our experiences. First of all, there's the experience itself overall. I can only imagine how wonderful and exciting it must have felt for Jacob. Can you imagine having this vivid dream of a ladder reaching to heaven and seeing angels ascending and descending upon it? It was what we might call a mountaintop experience for Jacob. I enjoy those moments in my life. But I want to caution you that there are some inherent problems with these experiences. They can become what we crave instead of God himself. Church revivals, youth camps, passion conference, trace dias, walk to Emmaus, Bible and worship conferences, music concerts, all wonderful, wonderful experiences that we enjoy being in. But we have to be careful that we don't crave those experiences more than we crave God himself. We have an example in the New Testament where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain of transfiguration. And Jesus was transfigured before them. In other words, what he really was became evident to them. That he became uh, clothed with bright, shining garments. And it blinded, uh, not physically, but it caused the disciples to be in awe. And then Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ. And Peter and James and John were overawed at this wonderful mountaintop experience. Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And all of a sudden, a booming voice comes from heaven. I mean, can you imagine the loudest thunder you've ever heard? And all of a sudden, 
Peter, James, and John fall flat on their face and they hear this voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. You know what God was saying? It ain't about Moses and Elijah. It ain't about this mountaintop experience. It's about the one standing right in front of you. And that passage ends with these words. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You see, it's not about your mountaintop experience. It's about Jesus Christ and your connection and your relationship to Him. So be very careful of these religious spiritual experiences, even a Sunday morning worship experience. Second aspect of this experience was the angels themselves. Notice that it says they were ascending and descending in that order. That's how it, look at your Bible or look at the scripture. It says they were ascending and descending. So if they were ascending and then descending, what does that indicate? They were already here. Did you know that? The Bible says that we better not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so we have unwittingly entertained angels. Hebrews 1.4 says the angels are God's ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation. They're already here. Jacob could have made this experience all about his dream and, and these angels and this wonderful feeling that he had. But the Bible warns us about making angel or angelic appearances more important than God. Paul warned us that even the devil and his ministers can appear as angels of light. They can bring false messages to people who become deceived because it was an angel that told them so. That's how we got Mormonism. Because a guy thought he had this message from an angel, and it was a false message, it was a false gospel, and, and therefore we have the cult of Mormonism. The same is true for Jehovah's Witness. You see, there's a lot of false teaching out there because somebody exalted the angel and his message before and even higher than they looked at the Word of God. John, the revelator who wrote the book of Revelation, as he saw, was rebuked on two or three different occasions for bowing and worshiping angels. The angel said, get up, don't worship me, worship God. So be careful when you say, I heard from an angel. You better back it up with the word of the Holy Spirit-inspired book, the Bible. Then there's the place itself. Jacob said in verse 17, how awesome is this place? Often when we go somewhere special or experience something special in a special place, we can long for that place because it becomes quite significant to us. For example, the Holy Land. I've always wanted to go to the Holy Land. I finally got to go to the Holy Land back in 2009. And let me tell you, if you've never been, it is a wonderful, wonderful experience. It's a wonderful place to walk where Jesus walked, to see some of the places where Jesus taught and served. And, and it's great. It's great. And I was overawed by it all. It was just overwhelming. I couldn't take it all in. It took me months even to process through some of that stuff. We, I bought everything I could buy to, to understand more about the Holy Land and, and how it fits and 
helps me understand the scriptures even better. But when I got home, God hit me with a passage of scripture. It was so real. It was in Psalm 68, 35. The psalmist said, Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, the disciples were overawed at the temple. It says, as they went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings these are. Jesus answered and said, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. This will not be thrown down. In fact, when we were in Israel, we saw those stones piled up on top of each other where the temple had been destroyed and the stones are still there. Church buildings, chapels, cathedrals. That's where I got saved. You know the church I was baptized in was demolished in Katrina? The church Tana went to kindergarten in, demolished by these tornadoes last week. That's where I got saved. That's where I got baptized. That's, that's where I got married. That's where I buried my mama or my daddy or my grandmother. We, we can't do nothing. That building, that place is awesome. Listen, God is more awesome than his holy places. So I say all that to say beware that your salvation is not based on some religious experience some angelic visitation, or some holy place. I want you to notice in verse 13 what is prominent here in Genesis 28. And behold, the Lord stood where? Where did the Lord stand? Above it. That's what's prominent. That's who's prominent. The Lord is prominent. He is exalted far above all. Listen to how Paul put in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our salvation, our relationship to God, the forgiveness of our sin is based solely on Christ. No matter what experience we may have had or not had, whether we saw glorious things or we didn't see glorious things. Whether we were in some religious place or we were not in some religious place. Paul was saved in a common place, but in a glorious way. A bright light on a road to Damascus. A voice from heaven. Many other scriptures tell us about people who had the privilege of seeing things that led them to believe. But here's what Jesus told Thomas, and this is true for you and me, for most of us here. Thomas wouldn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he had seen. And see, some people demand a religious experience in order to believe in Jesus Christ. You don't need a religious experience to believe in Jesus Christ. You simply need childlike faith. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you now believe. But blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. So my friends, I want to tell you, don't despise your testimony. I don't have some grand testimony of how I was saved. I wasn't addicted to drugs. I wasn't involved in immorality. I was a sinner, yes, who got saved by the grace of God. Don't despise your testimony, but make sure it's genuine. Make sure it's the real deal. That it's not based in some religious experience. I want you to notice back in Genesis 28 that Jacob's testimony, his salvation experience began with a personal commitment of his life to God. It says in verse 20, Jacob vowed a vow. He said, if God will be with me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. I was reading Psalm 16 this week and verse 2 jumped out at me as I had already prepared this message. It's, it's actually a messianic psalm, but... It's David who wrote it, and he said, Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. As I began to read some commentaries on that verse, it, they all agreed with the same, saying the same thing, that this was a vow of allegiance to God. I said to my soul, I said, I, I, My soul said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, This declares full consent to the rule and government of the infinite Jehovah. It's to avow this with the lip, but for the soul to say it's a gracious evidence of spiritual health. To profess it before men's a small matter, but to declare it before Jehovah himself is a far more consequence. This sentence may also be viewed as the utterance of appropriating faith, laying hold upon the Lord by personal covenant and enjoyment. Several things I want you to note about this vow that jo Jacob made. First of all, God bowed to Jacob long before Jacob bowed to God. He calls his attention to his vow, God does, in verse 13. He said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father. The things that I swore to him, I'm swearing to you. Listen, before you ever come to Christ by faith, the commitment that God made has that God makes has already been made. The Bible says in John chapter one, verse eleven, says, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our salvation is based on God's promises, God's will, God's work. We receive it when we believe in him and commit our lives to him. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. God already made the commitment. God already made the vow before we ever thought about coming to Christ and making our vow. Same here with Joseph. God initiated this. He made the vow. He declared what I've already done for you. I want you to notice something else, that this vow takes place at one moment in time. 
this vow takes place at one moment in, in time. Verse 20, Jacob vowed a vow. God revealed himself to Jacob, and Jacob's commitment to God was decisive at that moment in time. Certainly, we see the rest of the story that, that uh, Jacob's faith matured and developed, but it began at this moment. Just as one's physical life begins with a moment in time, so does your new life. In fact, isn't that what Jesus taught us in John chapter 3? As he was talking to Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said, Teacher, we know you're a good man, for no man can do the things that you do unless he's from God. That sounds very pious. But Nicodemus didn't really know Christ. He knew of Christ. And that Nicodemus is how that characterizes many people sitting in pews today. They know of Christ. They just don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. They know all these wonderful things about him, but they've not committed their life to him. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus. He cut straight to the heart of the matter. He didn't bounce balls with him. He didn't play tootsie with him. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. He cut to the chase. Nicodemus, it ain't about what you know about me. It's about you committing your life to me and what I'm going to do for you. Nicodemus said, Lord, how can a man be born again? How can he go back into his mother's womb and come out again? Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's a physical birth, Jesus said. And then he said, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's a spiritual birth. Your physical birth happens at one moment in time. October the 11th, 1964, I took my first breath into this world. And I told you last week that when I was six years old, I took my breath of life into the kingdom of God as I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. It happened at a specific moment in time. I was saved. Therefore, I am saved. Yes, there is growth. There is maturity all along the way. But there's that specific moment in time Acts 16.31, Paul was preaching and he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That word believe is in the Greek is in the aorist tense. And for those of you who are gram grammatically knowledgeable, know that that means an instantaneous, decisive action. Paul said, believe. Right now, believe. Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. There is a decided moment in your life where you make a vow, a commitment to Jesus Christ, no turning back. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean you have fully arrived. It means you're starting that relationship with God today. You say, I don't remember that day. You don't have to remember date or the time I couldn't give you the date on the calendar all I can remember it was a Saturday night I remember going to my dad I remember saying dad I, I, and I just confessing my sin and asking dad Lord I, I mean uh, I need Jesus as my Lord I need him to save me I don't want to go to hell I want to be saved all I understood was that I was a sinner. All I understood was that Jesus could save me. And I believed with all my heart that if I asked him to, that he would save me. And I remember we got down on the floor at the corner of their bed, and, 
And I prayed and asked Jesus to save me from my sin and forgive me. That was the turning point of my life. Couldn't put it on the calendar. Couldn't tell you what time of day it was, but I can go back to that experience. That was my spiritual marker that I'll never forget. Do you have one of those in your life? Another illustration Jesus used was marriage in Ephesians 5. He used that to compare his relationship to his people. I was married July the 30th, 1988. That was another spiritual marker in my life, a vow that I took. Same is true for salvation. Jesus compared birth and marriage to salvation. Both are one-time experiences that you can go back to. You see, you don't have to do it over and over again. You don't get saved yesterday and again today and, and then again tomorrow and then again the next day. When you give your heart to Jesus Christ, He takes it and He gives you His life. As we talked about in Sunday school and Brian mentioned, He gets a hold of you and you get a hold of Him. And you begin this relationship. You start on this journey. You're not perfect. You're learning. You're going to mess up. You're going to sin. You're going to fall. But you have that connection, that relationship. He's going to help you. When you do sin, you feel conviction. You feel guilt. So you come back to Christ for forgiveness. Not that you need to be saved again. You're already His. You're already His child. Listen, this birth illustration goes the same way. If you have a child, you, you think, man, look at that perfect little baby. Just look how perfect they are. And they're perfect for about... Five minutes. And then they get hungry and they start crying. And you take them home and, and then they get very demanding and they don't like to sleep. And then they get to be two years old and oh, they're holy terrors. They're not perfect. But are they yours? Are you going to go leave them at the curb because you don't like the way they're behaving? They're yours. They, you made a commitment to them. That's the way it is with God. Even when we fail, even when we don't do things that please Him, we're His. And we have His forgiveness and we have His cleansing. And if you've made this commitment for real, there'll be evidence of a changed life. You see, we could look at Genesis 33, and I'm going to give you that for homework. I don't very often give homework at church. But read the first 11 verses of Genesis 33. And you'll see that Jacob had a changed life. Remember last week he was the grasper and he stole Esau's birthright and he stole Esau's firstborn blessing. And now God has changed his life and he's feel, feeling guilty and remorseful. And so in Genesis 33, we find where he and Esau are able to reconcile with one another. We see the evidence of a changed life. In Luke chapter Three, John the Baptist was preaching, and his was a baptism of repentance. And they ba were baptized, and then after they were baptized, Luke records that they asked, What shall we do now? And, and John the Baptist gave them some specific ways that they could repent. He said, If you're a tax collector, then don't collect more than that person owes. If you're a soldier in the Roman army, because there were some that, of those that were saved and baptized, he said, You be merciful. And he gave some specific instructions. He said, and here's what the verse that he said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. If you've truly been saved, there will be evidence of it in your life. 
Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus told the parable of the, the four different types of soil that related to the four types of hearts. And there was only one type of soil that Jesus compared as, said was good soil. It was the soil that received the seed. You see, there were some soils that received the seed, but because of trouble and persecution, they fizzled out. Some received the seed, but because of the cares of this world and the pursuit of pleasures, they fizzled out. And then, of course, there were some who didn't receive the seed because it just fell on hard hearts. But Jesus said there was one type of heart, there was one type of soil that was soft, that was pliable, that was ready to receive the seed, and it received the seed, and it sprouted, and it grew, and it bore fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 times as much. So Jesus was saying, if you're genuinely his, you will be bearing fruit. So look at the fruit in your life. Do you see fruit? Do you see evidence of Jesus in your life? Where do we see that in Jacob? Well, here in Genesis uh, 28, 22, this ought to be pretty good evidence. Jacob said, uh, you gave me, he said, uh, I will surely give you a, a tenth. You know, if somebody's tithing, that's what Jacob did. He said, I'm, I'm going to give back to you. There's evidence of a changed life. Lord, no longer am I going to be a grasper. Now, God, I'm going to be a giver. I'm not going to be self-focused, self-centered anymore. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to give a tenth back to you. You know, there would be evidence of a changed life. Not just tithing, of course, because you can tithe and still bust hell wide open. But this just so happened to serve as evidence in Jacob's life. So as we look at these things this morning, as we consider all that I've said and all that this passage has revealed for us, God initiates this relationship. That you Have you had that one-on-one -on -one encounter with God? That you know you've met with Him? You have felt the conviction of your sin personally from Him? It's not just been some religious experience, some high, high emotional experience that you got off some, some youth camp or passion conference or church revival or, or concert that you just kind of, you, you made a commitment to, but you know it didn't change you. You went back to living the same old way. Was there a time in your life that you can point back to and say that was the decisive moment in time? I don't necessarily remember the date. I don't even know if I, if, if I can remember the time of day or whatever, but, but I can point back to that time. That's the day I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And there's evidence. I'm not perfect, far from it, but I see that I've grown from where I was at 6, 14, to 25, to 35, now, you, you can guess as long as you want. 52, that I've grown a whole lot. I didn't, I didn't know at six what I know now. Does that make me lost, that I need to get saved again? I know so much more of Jesus now. No. But I point back to that because that's where it started. Maybe that's where some of you are today. That's where you need to start. Maybe you've had some type of religious experience, or maybe you thought you were borrowing your family's faith, and, but you've never really made it yours. Maybe it was your family's faith that introduced you to Christ, but you never truly committed yourself to it. Moved from being a sinful, selfish grasper to being a personal vower. 
I'm today going to nail this down. I'm going to commit my life to Jesus Christ once and for all. Every head bowed, every eye closed.